in fact, a big problem in companies is that people are not having healthy disagreements and conflicts. Clarity in Conversations, episode four. And so great leaders need to learn how to ask great clarifying questions and guide the conversation. Miscommunication in offices around the world leads to delayed projects, frustrated colleagues, and missed sales. This can be avoided. There's fascinating research that gives insight into how to have creative dialogues and clear conversations in the office and at home. Full of practical tips, insightful research, and inspiring guests, this is... Clarity in Conversations, a podcast by Frank Garten. Welcome back to Clarity in Conversations, episode four, where today's topic consists of just two words. Two words that can instantly kill a conversation, yet we use them all the time. And the two words are, yes, but... Now, this links very much to the last episode of Clarity in Conversations, when I spoke with Laura Janicek about effective listening skills. What we know through the research is that people can really fake good listening behaviors and absolutely nothing's going on cognitively. I was really happy again with all the responses I received from you after the last episode, and I would invite all of you to continue responding by sending a mail to frank at clarityinconversations.nl. And also take a look at my website, clarityinconversations.nl, where you find many articles and thoughts about this topic and even bi-weekly practical tips in your mailbox if you'd like. So find your way there, clarityinconversations.nl. On to today's episode, where I thought it was a nice idea to find out in which way you can kill a conversation. That's when you have this really great idea. You enthusiastically tell it to a colleague who then responds by saying, yeah, but... And then it's over. It's just two words, but they make you feel empty, right? Did your colleague hear anything you said about your great idea? Did the idea even reach his intelligent brain? Or was it bounced like spam by his system that blocks great new ideas? I mean, I I usually feel rather frustrated when somebody responds to me by saying, yeah, but... A few weeks ago, I saw an article about these two words that can kill. It was written by Renita Kelhorn, whom I already follow for a long time, as she has published a lot about mental toughness, another of my key interests. And Renita is a leadership development expert and receives a lot of international clients in her executive coaching practice. She is also an accomplished concert pianist, a master black belt in martial arts. She holds an MBA, but more importantly for today's podcast, she talks passionately about things leaders and future leaders should do to increase their brilliance. Let's move to the interview with Renita, recorded when she was in Paris recently. And I asked her, why is using the yes but response so bad for high quality conversations? First of all, I, I believe at a fundamental level that conversations are a vehicle for, for growth, for creating something. And so ideally, we leave every conversation feeling like we've grown somehow, that we've evolved, that we understand the world better or ourselves better or the other person. And that the yeah, but response is like the antithesis to that, because it's basically saying, let me reinforce the way I see things. And so it's all about preserving your view and your position. And so the way that ties into the brain is the brain is all about survival. It's it's number one priority in life is, is to make sure that we are surviving. And a key component of survival is status. And a key component of status is being right or wrong. And so if somebody makes 
or, or we perceive that somebody is making us wrong, then that literally feels like a survival threat. The brain perceives that as a survival threat because our status has been lowered. And then it goes into fight or flight reaction. And so now we're either actively, aggressively um, debating with this person, or we're just kind of tuning out, which would be the, the equivalent of flight in, in survival terms. And you're saying that's an automatic response. Yeah, it's an automatic response, literally, just based on our past. So we're interpreting what they say. We have a, an interpretation of how that's lowering our status. And then we just respond in the way that we typically respond without any sort of conscious thought around it. So what's the problem with the yes, but response? It's not so much the words. Linguistically, there's not much going on, but the intention behind the words is flawed. You basically say, I reject your idea. Here's mine. Your mindset and your attitude are wrong. Yeah, that's a great point. I think it's more of an attitude um, than the actual words. Because obviously, if you didn't speak English, that would mean nothing to you. Or if you were a child uh, just learning the language, that probably wouldn't mean anything to you. So it's more of an attitude, you know, the body language, rolling your eyes, shaking your head, all of these things could be, yeah, but have, yeah, but um, uh, the same sense of it. And I, and you've probably heard how now instead of, yeah, but people are being taught to say, yeah, and to take from an improvisational technique. Yeah. And yet I see people saying yes, and, and they're really still just saying, yeah, but. The response is the same, right? <laughs> it's the same. Yeah. yeah. And the fun thing is the but doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean a disagreement. I mean, sometimes it does. Mm. It, 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 it's almost more like giving a signal, now I want to speak. I don't want to hear you at the moment. And you could say it in a way where you want to learn more. So, yes, but how would that work? Or, yeah, but can you explain how that would work? So, you're basic, you could be signaling, all right, you said something. I don't quite understand what you mean. Can you explain more? And that, I think, has a very different tone. Is there, is there, in your view, anything we can do in our minds to avoid that we take it personally? So, so is there anything we can do in our brain to avoid that we're, we're caught by this, what I call defensive response? Well, something I, I do with my clients is I have them prepare for conversations, especially high-stakes conversations, where they know that there's this undertone of uh, emotional undertone where they might be, well, because the stakes are high, that they really want something, they get attached to something, and so they might be very easily triggered. And so we work together to identify what are those potential fight or flight triggers that might come up and how might you handle them? And also, what do you think are the fight or flight triggers for the other person? And how might you avoid triggering them or mitigating those triggers? The other thing that people don't do in my in my experience is they don't actually catch themselves so you might actually re react and say yeah but and then launch into your rebuttal and then if you can notice that you can always stop and catch yourself and for some reason people feel like they can't actually stop they need to keep going once they've started and what I tell clients is, no, you can actually say, oh, hold on a second. I just realized I, I started into my rebuttal without actually understanding fully what you said. So let me back up here and ask, uh, make sure that I understood exactly what you're saying. Okay, and that so will get the conversation probably back on track. Right. 
Right. So, so, so learning your own responses, your bodily responses, your, mm. your, your thoughts at the moment, some, somebody is saying something, you're saying being aware of that is, is a great warning that you're going off track. And just being self-aware enough to notice what you're doing instead of getting caught up in that automatic reaction and then you're not even thinking consciously. I hear many of you think at this point, this makes having a good conversation really hard. If I have to pay attention all the time to what the other person says, interpret her reactions, monitor body language, listen with intention, not say yes but... I mean, come on, our discussion is really rational here. We're having a problem-solving discussion, we're using facts and figures, that's my work. So, it's purely rational. All of this doesn't apply to me, right? That's a great point. Many people think, well, but no, this is just a rational discussion we're having here. Exactly, yeah. And yet, in many of these quote-unquote rational discussions, there's an emotional undertone. So whether is it, am I going to lose somebody on my team? Are you trying to take away my budget or some of my responsibility? Or there's, there's always, often there's this emotional undertone that people try to hide with ha by having a rational discussion. So, so even when it's purely rational, we, we may still be on the lookout for threats and, and oh, fears. Oh, absolutely. We, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because there's, I mean, think about the status threat, whether it's someone trying to take over your project or decide, you know, how much budget you get, or, I mean, there, there are just hundreds of ways that your status can be threatened. What would you say is the consequence of these kind of responses? Because we see them all the time. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I mean, first of all, people don't feel safe. They don't feel psychologically safe to say what they really think. So now that means you're not getting the best information from people. And if you're not getting the best information from people about what's really happening in a project, for example, or what's happening with a, a customer, then now your decision-making abilities are compromised. Yeah. Secondly, people aren't sharing their most creative ideas. They're not saying things that might be a little provocative or a little bit going against the, the grain. They're, they're just going along with groupthink. And so now you're missing out on opportunities to have more innovative ideas in exchange. All, um, big, all big themes at the moment, right? Creativity, yeah. innovation, decision yeah. making. Yeah, the, the, the thing, the key thing that every company wants, and they're not creating an environment to encourage it. In fact, they're creating an, an environment that discourages it. So anything that can help prevent, prevent these defensive responses you're saying will definitely result in higher quality conversations and therefore to more results. Yeah. And I think that you hit on the key. It's not even that they have to do anything special to be innovative. They just need to take away some of the resistance, some of the barriers to creativity yeah. because it's all there. It's, it's, it's there at the table when you're sitting in a meeting. It's just not coming out. You're getting maybe 10% of people's creative potential. Now I'm going to I'm going to do an experiment. I'm I'm still going to try to make a case for you in favor of of the yes but statement. I mean, Go for it. <laughs> let, let me see if it works. I mean I I could say that if I disagree with somebody sometimes I would just swallow it, you know. I'm I'm the other person is higher in the hierarchy or the other person has more knowledge or more expertise or experience. So but overcoming that should make me speak up and say to the person, really, I disagree with you. Is, isn't there a case to be made in favor also of the yes, but in, in the sense of bringing out your, your disagreements? Ah, I, yes, I love that, that clarifying distinction because none of this is about not disagreeing with people. 
In fact, a big problem in companies is that people are not having healthy disagreements and conflicts. So let me say that a yeah, but a real or the, the original yeah, but that we were talking about is not the key to healthy disagreement. That's just the key to further entrenchment in your own way of thinking. Okay. So what you're talking about is actually healthy disagreement around um, around the facts that are not it's not about personal conflict. It's about mm. okay. um, intellectual debate. Right. OK, so the emotional triggers may be less. Um, or the, the emotional responses may be less triggered even in, in that circumstance. Yeah. yeah, and I think you have to find a way to mitigate those potential emotional responses. So I like what you said. You could say, you know, kind of telegraph, well, I think I, I disagree with what you're saying. I have some ideas that don't really, or that seem to be in conflict with what you're saying. However, what I would suggest is that you first find out more about what the other person is actually saying. So healthy disagreements is okay. When you interrupt somebody and you say, yeah, but your tone of voice and your body language tell the other person what's really going on. When it's something like, yeah, but I don't think that, then you really deny the point of the other person. You take over the conversation and you kill the idea. The other person may respond defensively in this case. But there's a different, a richer response that you can use with exactly the same words. When you say something like, yeah, but okay, let's find out how that possibly works. Then you've said the same thing, but you say it now in an open and constructive tone and you're telling the other person, we're here together. I'm curious, let's find out. So let's find out how to do that. I guess if you wanted some kind of new behavior or some new quote unquote rule to follow, it would be to ask a clarifying question, to get more information first. So to notice you, you're triggered, but let's say you notice that, oh, he said something that I don't agree with. Uh, instead of launching immediately into your response, find out a little bit more. And again, I think you can say, well, I, I don't exactly agree with what you're saying, mm -hmm. but I would like to find out more first. Now, in, in your daily work, um, Renita, you, you help top-level executives even um, to achieve better performance through improving their communication, their relationship with others. What are, what are some of the other practical tips you usually give them? I, I would, it, it's along the same thing, actually, is this idea of being curious. Because I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and founders who have a big vision, they're trying to get a lot done, and they feel like they don't have enough time to get everything done. And so oftentimes being curious feels like something you just don't have time for. And I've had, you know, you can go into a meeting, you have this long agenda of things you need to get done, and you can start leading the meeting and then realize you're not even actually paying attention to what people are saying or following up on what they're saying because you're so focused on the next point on your agenda. Mm, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's one of the pushbacks I usually get when we talk, when we talk about listening skills and we work on improving listening skills that people say, well, I can, I can spend a whole lot of time listening to the other person, but I won't achieve what I want. And that's a great point. I, many, it's not just about listening. Um, so another thing I talk about is you need to train your team how to talk to you. So they need to come to you with their thoughts fully formed as much as possible, not just coming to you to ramble. Uh, and so I think you've hit on a, on, a, on a key valid argument why people don't actually want to just sit there and listen, because it could be a waste of time if people are just rambling. 
However, the person who asks the questions is controlling the conversation. And so great leaders need to learn how to ask great clarifying questions and guide the conversation. It's, it's almost like you're making the case here for, for advocacy and inquiry, right? Uh, people have to learn to ask great open questions in order to open the other person up while still not, not letting go of their own opinion. So the advocacy mm-hmm. and, and being clear on what you think doesn't have to be compromised in that situation. And that's what I call leadership agility, because you have to be going back and forth between these different positions where you're empathizing with someone and then you're focused on, on being strategic and, and executing, or you're zooming out to look at the big picture and then you're, you're diving back in to, to focus on details. And so great leaders now, they just can't be one way or the other. They have to be able to, to go between different extremes. Leaders need flexibility. There's no handbook that tells you what to do in which situation. Now, still as a leader, you look for advice, of course. You want practical tips, you want guidelines like we give at the end of each episode of this podcast. But there are no universal rules and tools. These days, more than ever, leaders need to respond to upcoming situations with an open mind and flexibility. Yeah, I think too often people just want rules or tools that they can always use in every situation. And we don't live in a world like that anymore. (laughs) Certainly, I mean, the world now is just too ambiguous, too complex. And the real skill is understanding, okay, here are all the tools I have at my disposal which is going to be the best tool to use in this instance? Is it empathy? Is it to be strategic? Is it to be authoritative? You know, do I make a decision? Do I look for consensus? Well, yeah, what I, what I realize is that it, it really helps to have the right state of mind, right? You, you said before, a mindset of curiosity is really going to help you in meetings and, and to make sure other people don't respond defensively. In, in your experience guiding leaders and, and, and professionals, is mindset something you can train or, or you can learn? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah? Absolutely. I, and that's the whole premise of my, my work, is that you can train and retrain your mindset. So just like you train a physical muscle, you can train the muscles of curiosity, Um, It's not enough to read an article in Harvard Business Review about how important curiosity is and how it actually does improve your ROI. You actually need to go into your next conversation and feel that desire to just get things done and say, okay, hold on. I'm going to just see if I can try this curiosity thing and then maybe screw it up and then try again. So that's a big part of your work, uh, Renita, to, to, to help people conduct that kind of experiments back at their work, learn from it, reflect on it, try something else. Mm -hmm. And actually what I do is I provide a training ground in my coaching groups where people can actually practice some of these, you know, more, more difficult skills. Let's say like being vulnerable, being um, empathetic. You know, if you haven't developed these muscles, you don't want to go into your next board meeting and try to be vulnerable without having practiced in a safe place. And so I think that's what's really key for leaders is to be able to have that quote unquote place to practice and then practice and then take it into a low stakes environment before you take it into a high stakes environment. That's fine. I, th- I think that's a big insight for a lot of people listening to the show is that it, it, you, you sound 100% convinced when you say, oh, yes, mindset can be trained in exactly the same way as other muscles need to be trained. Oh, because I've seen it. 
Yeah. I've seen people. So most people grow up, they don't really, I guess partly because communication is something we just do. It feels like walking, right? But I, you and I know that in a leadership context, that communication is a real art and a real skill. So I help people, for example, starting a meeting, a high stakes meeting. I've practiced with clients. How are you going to start that meeting to, to ensure that it, it goes as well as possible? And typically the first time they start the meeting, they sound tentative. The second time it sound, still sounds tentative, but it's already better. And by the third time, they're feeling much more confident about starting that meeting. I think that's a, that's a great case you're making for a return on learning and for, for, for learning new things about even what people call the soft skills, right? It can mm -hmm. have immediate results when you start training it back at work. Yeah. I, I, now, you do need to know how to train. Uh, so that's, that's why coaches like, uh, are helpful in providing that guidance. You know, I didn't learn the piano. Um, I had piano lessons every week because I needed someone guiding me and, and helping me course correct. So it is hard to do it on your own because you, we all have blind spots. And so we might be practicing things that are actually our blind spots. It's very analogous to the physical development of muscles. If people listen to the show and they think, okay, yeah, that's definitely a step I need to make rather than learning the skills, I need to, I need to work on my mindset and, and to become more effective. What, what would, be, would be some steps you would advise them to take? Oh, the first step, in my opinion, is always just to raise awareness. So just to be more aware of what you're actually doing right now. What they can do is just start to notice what are some of the, the problems they're having in their current interactions in work, whether it's people interrupting them, whether it's people not paying attention, whether it's they find themselves getting into these yeah, but conversations. Just start to notice what's happening. That alone will help you make different decisions. So that, that's your daily work. You help people becoming better at that uh, through coaching, through helping teams. And you told me you recently launched a webinar that people can subscribe to. Is, can you say a few words about that? Sure. I'm, I'm really focusing on helping um, the exponential leaders of the world. And that takes a lot of the mental muscles that we've been talking about that don't necessarily come easy. And how do you develop that leadership agility to to balance between being curious and getting things done. And so I've created a, a program to help people develop those, those mental muscles and actually train them. Um, and so I've developed a webinar that explains how the five shifts that these founders, these maverick leaders need to make. Wow, so it's called five shifts that founders need to make, right? Five shifts founders make to build an A-plus team and drive 10x growth. Okay, um, I'm, I'm coming to a last question that I, I ask to every guest. If you think back of, of everything you've learned, what's, what's the key thing you've learned about making conversations clearer? Well, in a nutshell, it's don't assume you know what the other person is saying. I mean, they, first of all, most people are not especially skilled at articulating what they think. They're not particularly precise because they know what they think. And so if you can get away from those assumptions, stop assuming you know what people think, and just ask to find out more, you will uncover so much gold. I've never asked a, a clarifying question where someone said exactly what I thought they were going to say. Never. And I can tell you it's because most people don't know what they think. 
So by asking those clarifying questions, you're helping them understand what they think. So there's no way that you could know what they're thinking when they don't themselves even know what they think. That was Renita Kalhorn with a great slot here on listening skills and asking clarifying questions. People often themselves don't know what they think. So you're assuming you fully understand them, but often that leads to the wrong assumptions and the wrong conclusions. By the way, episode 3 of Clarity and Conversations was all about this topic. Listening strategies in order to build better conversations. And now we're back at the theme of last week's episode, the power of listening and asking good questions. Do we really listen in order to respond or do we listen in order to learn? These are two very different ways. Now in this podcast, I every week look back on the main interview with Els de Meijer, researcher on communication and innovation at Fontes Education in the Netherlands. And Els also reflected on the importance of asking great questions rather than with responding with your own point of view. So is asking questions the alternative really for what we're looking for here? The answer is yes, but... Yeah, the thing is, it is a great alternative, but we don't do it as often. It seems as something that impedes us from asking questions. And I think here is the time to introduce a new concept, maybe a new theoretical concept that I don't think you've addressed before because it's from a, a, a different theoretical angle. It's more like a social linguistic concept rather than a, a cognitive uh, concept, which is the concept of face. It's pretty old already. Um, Goffman introduced it um, late 60s, if I'm not mistaken. So, so saving phase and losing phase. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's what we, we actually know the concept in, in our daily language as well, you know, like as in, oh, he was losing phase or right. something like that. And you're saying that prevents us from. Yeah, so the, the thing is that phase is like, I want to be seen as someone by other people and I'll do everything to keep it like that yeah. and I also know that you have the same so I will not try to make you lose your face. Now the thing with asking questions is is that it inherently is a uh, face threatening action because of a lot of reasons actually. Like firstly I in business for example someone's presenting and I didn't quite get it and I asked the question what did you mean or could you elaborate on that or something like that people may think oh she's stupid she does she really not right. get it yeah. so I don't want to be seen as stupid so I'll keep my mouth shut yeah. the other reason may be and I think um Rindita also talked about that is time in business time is money and if I ask a question, I kind of slow down the process and I don't want to be seen as the one slowing down the process because time is money and I don't want yeah. to be seen as, as losing valuable time or making you lose valuable time. That's the time. famous one. I don't have time exactly. to listen to the answer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 and I'm not going to ask a question then because I, I slow down the process. Yeah. And the third level on which that face actually plays is a bit of a, the level of the other person where if I ask you a question there is the chance that you don't know the answer to that. And if you don't know the answer to that, that is also a face threat. So you make me lose face. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I don't want to be seen as someone who does that to you. So it plays on different levels. And I think it's a very good explanation for um, the difficulty she describes in, or the easiness, actually, I should say, with people just going into the yes but and, and giving their own opinion rather than kind of first thing and write what was actually said here. Which already is an issue in Western Europe, but then 
or, or the US mm -hmm. for that matter, but, but much stronger, of course, in some other cultures Is where it? this plays much stronger. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this reminds me always of the famous example I use in trainings about Japan, where you where you don't ask somebody a very direct question, like, okay. like what's the shortest way to the police station? Because th the person may not know. Yeah. So rather than asking him on the spot with a yes or no question, you, you tell him, oh, I'm on the way to the police station, okay. but stupid of me, I forgot my map. And All right. You rely on the other person to come up with. Oh, okay. So yeah, so so, so this is complete. This is very interesting because um, face was criticized at some point as being like people saying, right, this cannot be a universal concept. It's culturally different. What's your take on it? Well, the thing is, it um, the the way it works and what is face and what determines someone's face and what is conceived as a or perceived as a face threat, of course, is culturally different. Um, but I do believe that the idea of, you know, wanting to be seen by someone in a certain way and presenting yourself in a certain way, which is very closely related to identity, is a universal concept. And, and we should recognize that, I think, that that's how it works. And, of course, the way it kind of plays out depends on culture, depends on context, depends on who you're with and who you talk to. So when we ask great questions, we run the risk of losing face, apparently. And that can be a reason to hold back, to not ask questions. And it leads to a further insight here in the, in the yes, but response we discussed in this episode. When we say yes, but, and we argue, that's a safe response. It's within our comfort zone. But asking clarifying and open questions can be an unsafe response, potentially putting us under threat. So if we do not want to put ourselves in a vulnerable position, then we take the safe path and we say, yeah, but, and we argue. Now I see this in many leadership development programs I'm involved with. You see these really smart, visionary, brilliant people who have great ideas and they become often too protective of their own image. So rather than be vulnerable at times and say, I just don't know and ask great questions, they try to protect their image by responding smartly, by responding instantly, by arguing, yes, but. Now, there's much more to say about this, but it's time to wrap up today's episode. Three tips to bring more clarity into your conversations. Tip one. Be incredibly curious. Accept the mindset of not having to achieve something specific right now. I don't need to win this argument. If you take that mindset, it's going to be interesting. I'm just going to be curious about you now. I may learn something new and interesting even. Tip two. Curiosity is a mindset, and Renita confirmed this today, that mindset can be trained. So go into your next conversation with this different mindset and practice this in the next few conversations you have in the office and see what it brings. It really can be a life changer. Accept the mindset of curiosity. Tip three. Train yourself to become aware of the assumptions you make about others. When you become aware of your assumptions, you can put them to the test. Is this true or is this just convenient for me to think? You don't have to come up with the new assumptions. You don't have to replace them. All you need to do is switch on your curiosity mode. So don't assume you know what other people are saying. Ask them. Many thanks to Renita Kelhorn for being my guest on this episode of Clarity in Conversations. Now let's bring clarity also in our conversation here in this podcast. 
Your reactions, your feedback, suggestions are all very welcome. Send me a mail at frank at clarityinconversations.nl. That is frank at clarityinconversations.nl. So next time in Clarity in Conversations, my guest is Eric Boers, a philosopher in organizations. And with Eric, I talk about deeper conversations in the office that provide real meaning. Central in that discussion will be the so-called Socratic dialogue. Yeah, Socratic dialogue is, uh, in a sense, a, a more philosophical dialogue, which means you think about crucial issues together, finding out what is the most right way of dealing with it. That's next time for this week. Lots of thanks to Renita Kelhorn and to Els de Meyer for her reflections. Thanks for listening to Clarity and Conversations, a podcast by Frank Garten.